You may be seated. <laughs> so I don't know if you can see this. Somebody left me a little Debbie Swiss roll. I don't know if I should thank you for leading me into temptation. I'm not going to share it. So, okay. Well, that text, it was short, but it's a very powerful text. Peter is writing, and he was one of Jesus' followers, and he knew that it's important for the people under his spiritual care to grow in, in Jesus' grace and knowledge because it's easy to get stagnant. It's very easy to just hit a plateau, but God wants us to continue to grow. We can be lifelong learners. We can be people who don't stagnate, who don't plateau, who, who continue to, to get closer to Jesus and to grow in his grace and knowledge means to grow closer to him, to experience more of his life. And so today, I want to share with you some things. Actually, I'm kicking off a series, and uh, we're going to be talking about simple practices that help us experience God's influence. God loves to influence people, and I find that I'm motivated to be uh, open to receive God's influence when I realize that God isn't interested in micromanaging me. Have you ever been micromanaged? You ever worked for somebody? I hear people go, yep, mm-hmm. You work for somebody who's always looking over your shoulder, you've had your responsibilities, you know exactly what's expected of you, but apparently you're not trusted to perform them. It's very insulting, isn't it? And, uh, and God's not like that. That's not who he is. How do we know this? We know it because in his word, he tells us several things about himself. Like for instance, that he is Agape, that's a very special word. Agape describes God's essence. The Bible says God is agape. And agape is unlike any other kind of love. There were other words that were used for love during the days that the Bible was being written in the first century. And there was a, a kind of love to describe erotic love, or I should say a word that was used to describe erotic love. It was a Greek word, eros. And there was another word to describe the kind of love that happens in, in families and among brothers, phileo, brotherly love. Uh, hence, we have the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And, and yet other words, and, and yet this one particular word, agape, describes a supernatural kind of love. It's a love that actually comes from God. That's what 1 John 4, 7 says. It comes from God. Why does it say that? Because you can't get it anywhere else. This love comes from God, and this love is described as being unconditional, and it's also described as being inexhaustible. There's nothing that you can do to influence God to give up on you, and it's impartial. We learn in John 17 that the very love with which Jesus was loved is the love with which God the Father loves us. But we also learn that God's love is non-coercive. That means it doesn't, God doesn't doesn't want to force us to do anything. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love doesn't insist on its own way. God doesn't insist on his own way. Isn't that something? God's not interested in, in dictating outcomes. He gave us each something called free will. He made us free moral agents. He wants us to be able to choose for ourselves, even if that means rejecting him. Because real love between creator and creature can't happen if we can't reject him. So God wants us to have that freedom. 
So love is non-coercive. It doesn't insist on its own way. God doesn't insist on his own way. And love is non-intrusive. We learn this when we read in the book of Revelation that Jesus was speaking to a church that had pushed him out. It seems almost inconceivable that a congregation would do that, but Jesus said that's what happened in the church of Laodicea. They had pushed him out. And it says he was standing at the door of that church, the entryway of that church, knocking to try to gain access. And he was calling out to them. And he said, if you hear my voice, you hear me knocking and you open the door, then I'll come in. But God isn't interested in barging into your life and controlling you. So I get motivated personally to consider ways that I can be open to receiving God's influence just knowing that God doesn't want to control me, but he does want to influence me. I'm also motivated to open my life to receive God's influence when I realize there's benefits to experiencing God's influence. For example, in Galatians 5, it tells us that if we learn to live under the influence of God the Holy Spirit, we'll experience all kinds of virtues, things like agape and, 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 and peace and, and joy and kindness, and it mentions gentleness and self-control. There's nine virtues mentioned there. And there's no indication in the original language where that is written to suggest to us that that's an exhaustive list. I suggest to you that those virtues are like the primary colors from which we get other colors. In other words, God wants us to experience these virtues that are so unusual. Would you like to experience more of God's supernatural love and his, and his joy? I mean, who would refuse joy? And sometimes we look for joy from chemicals, sometimes from experiences. Some of us have been thrill seekers. I used to do some ridiculously stupid things that were very life-threatening just because I liked the adrenaline rush. But God doesn't want us to do things that endanger ourselves in order to receive joy. Jesus said, the joy you see in me is the joy I want you to have. Jesus must have been a whole lot more joyous than the, the people who have portrayed him in most of the artwork we see about Jesus. He often looks pretty serious. And then we learn that if we experience God's influence, we'll experience forgiveness for sin. You know, when you and I sin, and we do something that is hurtful to ourselves and hurtful to others and dishonoring to God, if, if we're somewhat psychologically healthy and spiritually healthy, we'll feel badly about that. And sometimes that shame we feel will keep us from even mentioning it to anyone. I've learned, for example, that when we, when we do something that is, is really, really considered evil in the eyes of other people, shame kicks in and then we're so afraid of sharing anything about what we're experiencing with someone else that we'll just keep it to ourselves. And there's a statement that I've heard people in the recovery community make that I think is a spiritual truth, that when there's a secret that you have, something that you can't share, that, that thing owns you. It begins to own you. God wants us to learn to confess our sins. Even when we we're afraid to confess them because we're afraid we're gonna experience rejection. You know, I remember 
watching a television story. It was on a, a TV show that isn't aired any longer. It was called 2020. And there was this college-age man who grew up in an Assembly of God church. And uh, he learned about experiencing Jesus as a little boy and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then when he was about 13, he, he learned that he had a, a same-sex attraction, an attraction to other boys. And it was really frightening to him. And uh, he didn't know who to talk to about it. And he thought he should talk to his dad about it. But then he, he heard his, da his dad tell a joke about gay people that was very disparaging of gay people. And he thought, man, I don't know. I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't even talk to my dad about this. And then, and then he heard his pastor. He thought maybe he could talk to his pastor. He heard his pastor talk about gay people in a disparaging way. And he thought, I, I don't think I can share this with them. And then he, he tried to muscle his way through it. He thought he could do something to cultivate an attraction to girls. It, it just didn't work. He went away to a Christian college in North Dakota. Some of you have been there, to Allendale, North Dakota, Trinity College. And he fought this attraction for years. He was eventually so tired, so defeated by his inability to overcome this attraction that he just gave in and he said, that's it, this must be the way God made me. And he entered a very, what you might call a militant gay lifestyle. And eventually, he got AIDS. And, and he ended up dying from AIDS. And before he did, he was able to tell his parents about his journey and his story. And when I was watching this, I had small kids in my home. And I was thinking, if, this, if one of my children has a same-sex attraction, would I be the dad that they would feel unsafe telling this to? Would I be the pastor that some member of my church would feel unsafe telling this to? What message do we communicate? We need to become safe place people, but the beautiful news is God is always safe to communicate with. If you confess your sin to God, any sin, and it's not just same-sex attractions that should concern us. How about, how about heterosexual attractions for, for people outside of marriage? How about resentment or self-righteousness or any other particular thing that the Bible calls sinful? And when the Bible calls sinful something sinful, God is never identifying something as sinful to shame us. He's identifying it because he wants us to know this is something that will hurt us. Sin always does at least three things. Sin always dishonors God. It always injures the person who sins, and usually there's collateral damage too. But sin, thirdly, always opens a door of opportunity to the evil one. I remember what Kay Arthur said about sin, what she learned about sin from experience. Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go, makes you stay longer than you wanted to stay, and makes you pay more than you want to pay. So the best path forward when we, when we sin is to admit it. It's to admit it, own it, and, and tell God. And ideally, tell someone else. There are safe place people. In other words, people that you can confess any sin to, and they will not shame you. And there are other people, sadly, who are not safe place people, who are very self-righteous, who would probably shame you. But if you come to this church, and there's something you've never confessed to anyone, and you'd like to get it out, you'd like to talk about the particular things you struggle with, I can help you find self, excuse me, safe place people. And I'll tell you this, the people who were up here on stage last week talking about Oaks of Righteousness, Blake and, and Ben and Dina, they're safe place people. And everything you say to them is held in confidence. 
My point here being that when we confess sin to God, we not only get forgiveness, we get healing because what comes out of the darkness and into the light is why we can experience freedom. Am I making sense? So there are benefits to experiencing God's influence. And one of those benefits is the virtues I talked about a moment ago that are identified in Galatians. And one of them is forgiveness, to be forgiven. And when you're forgiven, your sin is separated from you, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. It's buried in the depths of the sea. It says God will never call it to mind again. And Corey Tenboom, the author, said, not only does he bury it in the depths of the sea, he puts a sign over it that says, no fishing. There's another benefit. There's actually many, more than I can ever discuss this morning. There's another benefit I want to talk to you about, though, this morning when it comes to experiencing God's influence. Paul talked to Timothy about it. So it's in 2 Timothy. It's in chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, Timothy. Now, that was important for Timothy to hear because apparently, and we read this in other places, Timothy struggled with fear. And Paul wanted him to know, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. He's given you a spirit of love and power and a sound mind. Some of you would like to experience love and power in a sound mind. And that's what you get from interacting with God, from experiencing his influence. And, and John 15, 11 tells us that when you experience his influence, you can experience his joy. You can experience his peace. What beautiful things. Well, beginning this week, we're going to begin talking about simple practices that will help us experience his influence. And today, I want to focus on just one, and it's praise. It's praise. Psalm 22, 3 says, God inhabits the praises of his people. He actually dwells in the, in the, in the praises of his people. Now, God is present everywhere. According to the Bible, there's two types of the presence of God. There's there's the, what we would call the um, omnipresence of God. We acknowledge that God is present everywhere. That's, that's a supernatural capacity. How, how can he do it? I, I don't know. I don't understand. I'm, I'm finite. God's infinite. I'm mortal. He's immortal. But God is present everywhere simultaneously. But when he becomes noticeably present, we call that the manifest presence of God. And some of you have felt that. And there's an old Pentecostal statement that goes something like this, God is better felt than telt. It's not great English, but it's powerful spiritual truth. Sometimes we try to convince people with words when what we need is the presence of God, the power of God. And I remember in some of those early days of this church, I remember we were meeting in a lecture hall at the high school, and there were maybe 150 people there. And we had this wild and crazy worship service, and the presence of God was almost palpable. And I was actually leading worship that Sunday. And I remember looking out thinking, we're going to scare half of these people away. Lord, are you sure you want to do this today? And I sensed him saying, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I do. And the next thing I know, there's people standing at the front saying, I didn't believe that there was a God before I came into this place, but I felt him. How can I experience him today? Wow. God's, God's presence can, can almost seem palpable. It's powerful. It transforms. It affects people. It, you can't remain unchanged when you experience the presence of God. And God inhabits the praises of his people. What is praise? 
Praise is simply the practice of giving thanks to God for his character and also for what he does for us. So it's good to think about, well, what is God like? What is his character really like? Well, we've talked about love. God is love. He's all those things we said. God is, that's his essence, he's love. The Bible also tells us that he's generous. In James chapter one, it says when you need wisdom, go to God for wisdom. It tells you two reasons to go to God for wisdom. One of them is because God is the source of wisdom. In other words, aren't we all confounded at times, you know, where there's just problems, we, we don't know how to move forward. Sometimes it's in a relationship, we've tried everything we can to restore a relationship, communication seems to break down. And we need wisdom. What's the best path forward? And the Bible says God's the source of wisdom. And there's a second reason why we can ask God. It says because he's generous. He's generous. And he gives, un, according to one translation, the word is ungrudgingly. In other words, the picture is God's hands are open. God's hands aren't closed. Some of us have a picture of a God whose hands are closed. And, and it's like the, the, the Christian life is a wrestling match. And we've got to somehow pry God's fingers open before he gives us what we need. That's not God. That's not the God of the universe. That's not the Father of the Lord Jesus. God says, hey, my hands are open, and they're full. They're full. When Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, and remember, everything Jesus did, he, he did because the Father was leading him to do it. When Jesus provided the fish and the loaves, you saw, you know, you know how he provided there was enough for everybody to get fully satisfied. That's God. God's hands are open. God's generous. That's who he is. God's powerful. He's powerful. He's, he's able to help us. Ephesians tells us that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, even beyond what we can ask or what we can think. That's remarkable. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, he said, what's, what's impossible with people is possible with God. All things are possible with God. Not only that, God's willing. He's willing. So there was a leper who came to Jesus, and he'd heard about Jesus' reputation as a healer, that Jesus had done some astounding things. Imagine that you have a disease, that you're in the first century, you have a disease that's just absolutely incurable, and that, that, that creates such, such fear in the minds of others that you have to be separated from everybody else and you have to live in your own separate co uh, colony with other people with your disease because everybody's afraid of catching your disease. And this, by the way, is a disease that is now called Hansen's disease and it's a disease that affects the nervous system so that if you step on a piece of glass, for instance, you don't feel it and then your foot gets infected, and then in the course of time, you may lose your foot because you don't even think that you need to treat your foot. Or if something gets in your eye, you don't even feel it, and, and you don't get it treated and you can lose your eye. Or, or people with this disease have been known to break a wrist when they are trying to open a door that's locked. They'll just keep trying and they'll snap their wrist. They won't even feel that they're snapping their wrist. What a terrible, frightening thing. And here's this guy. He hears that Jesus heals, and he's probably wondering, I wonder if he'd do this for me. I wonder if he'd do this for me. And so he, he gets close enough to Jesus, and by the way, you may know this, people with this disease, with leprosy, were told to stay away from people who didn't have the disease. So maybe this guy probably kept some distance, and he said, Jesus, I know you can do this. 
I know you can do this. And that's, that's where a lot of us are. I know you can, God. I know you can. The question is, will he? Will he? And that was his question. He said, if you're willing, you can do this for me. You can make me clean. And you know what Jesus said? Three words that changed his life. I'm willing. You think Jesus is still willing? Yeah, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and then it adds, and he doesn't show any favoritism. So we know what he did then, he'd, he'd do now. What he did for one, he'd do for any of us. So I think we've got we've to ask God to show us, then how do we receive? Why is it that so often we, we ask and we don't receive? There must be some impediments in the way, something we've got to find out. What, what is it that keeps us from receiving? And we can help you discern that here. God is loving. He's generous. He's powerful. He's willing to help. And he cares about every detail of your life. If you care about it, he cares about it. How do you know that? Because it says, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. He cares. Now, I don't have that capacity to care for everybody. I, I care for certain people and less about others. We all only have a certain amount of capacity. But God cares about each one of us, even the people who reject him, even the people who are hostile toward him. God says this. He says, I take, this is Old Testament. He says, I take no pleasure even in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would repent and live. Isn't that something? Wow. That's why we need to pray for people who don't know God, people who look to us like they're evil leaders, evil global leaders. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that their hearts will soften and that they'll be open to God. So what is God like that is praiseworthy? He's, he's like all those things. He's loving and generous and powerful and, and willing to help us, and, and he cares. He cares. And consider what he does. Consider what God does. He loved the world so much he sent his son. That's what he did. He sent his son. We also know that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. That's what he does. He sent Jesus to to die on the cross for us. He bore all of the weight of our sin, our collective sin, our individual sin. He bore it all so that we could experience God's might and grace and healing. We could have a relationship with God. And then the Bible tells us other things that he does. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. It says he's kind to good and wicked people alike. So it's good to praise God for those things. It's good to praise God for who he is and for what he does, which leads me to a question. So when should I praise God? And when I read the Psalms, I read Psalm 34, verse 1. It says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, which means this includes times that I feel like praising God and then I don't. So when do you praise God? When you feel like it, when you don't. Praise him. And I want to suggest that if you need help knowing what praise looks like, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. These were stock prayers that ancient Israel used to give them a little bit of footing when it came to praying. And one of my favorites is Psalm 103. And, and we learn from Psalm 103 that David, David was actually having a conversation with his, himself. 
He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's actually talking to himself. That language, bless the Lord, O my soul, actually means that. He was talking to himself. He was talking to that part of himself that was the seat of his emotions. And apparently he was down in the dumps. Apparently he needed a pep talk. And he said, so soul, soul, bless the Lord. And I don't want you to forget any of God's benefits. And I'm gonna remind you of those benefits. Because, because God pardons my sins. He heals my diseases. He crowns me with loving kindness and compassion. He fills my life with good things so my strength is renewed like the eagles. Go to the Psalms, brothers and sisters. Go to the Psalms. Psalm 98, Psalm 100. You'll hear people praising God. Now, these people who are ancient writers, if you become familiar with the Psalms, you'll learn that these people weren't fakers. They didn't always feel like they were on the mountaintop. Sometimes they admitted they were down in the, in, in the valley. The other night I was discouraged. And, um, and by the way, so you, I, I announced last week I got, I got engaged, but on Friday I got married. We, uh, thanks. And uh, I, I meant to tell you that at the beginning, but um, we, Wendy and I thought, why wait? Why wait? We had a license, license to marry, so we asked, we asked Nicholas. He said, sure, I'll be available. I can do that. So I'm officially married. And, uh, but in spite of that great news, I had a very heavy conversation the night before with, with some people I love very deeply. And it was a very painful conversation, and there was real conflict, real conflict. And, uh, and I, was, I was just feeling sad and bad and confused. And, and all of a sudden, I'm standing at my, in my kitchen. There's an island counter, and it was like the Spirit just reminded me, you know what, Kevin, you know, remember? Remember about praise. Remember that it's time to give me thanks when you're when you're so down and you don't know a path forward and you've done your best to address something and you, you suck at it, you're not making any progress, praise me. Praise me. Praise me when your child struggles with addiction. Praise me when your spouse struggles with health issues. Praise me when you're fired, you've lost a job. Praise me when you have unrelenting pain. Praise me when you have conflict in relationships. Praise me when you have financial struggles. Praise me from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. And watch what I will do. Because when you and I praise, we shift our attention from what we're suffering back onto God. And when we shift our attention onto him, guess what? We begin to experience his palpable presence. And he says, that's all I was waiting for you. That's faith at work. That's faith. What you just did, that's faith. And when you put your faith in me simply by praising me, you're trusting that I'm seated on my throne and you are seated with me there in the heavenly realms, even though you don't feel like it even though you don't feel like it you and I every day we walk down here in this place where it's tough we are living in a war zone you know bad stuff happens and it happens indiscriminately and we keep thinking God is responsible for it he's not Jesus said the God of this world is the devil John the Apostle said the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Jesus said the devil came to steal and kill and destroy. Why do we blame God for the bad stuff? Blame the devil. 
God's a deliverer. He's a redeemer. He's a savior. He loves to intervene. He's just waiting for people to invite him into the nastiness. And the nastiness is everywhere. But we have hope because we have him. And you know, I want to tell you something. This, this shift from focusing on our troubles, it's, it's not natural. It's natural to focus on your troubles. It's natural to just get down in the dumps. It's natural to start thinking of counterfeit comforts. Maybe, maybe alcohol, maybe, maybe you know, smoking some weed. I don't know. It's just natural to think about that stuff. Or porn or something else. It's natural. But we don't have to live like that. We can get beyond the natural to the supernatural. And we can say, God, would you help me when I'm down? Not to pretend that I'm not down. Not to pretend everything's okay. You know, some Christians never want to even hear that you're not doing well. I remember a time when my wife and I had left uh, Fergus Falls, and we had come back, and I wasn't in vocational ministry for a while, and I was down, man. It was a tough, tough season. And, and somebody said to me, what's wrong with you? You're not the person I remember you as. And they said it in a really judgmental, shaming way. Because they, I don't think they could handle the fact that I was suffering. And a lot of Christians are like that. And other Christians are, are not like that. They're like, buddy, how can I pray for you, man? But sometimes we just need to understand that if you're down, it's okay. But let's, let's do something about it. Let's invite God into it. We don't have to stay there. And this isn't about hype. It's not about pretending. The way up is to recognize this is painful. The other night after that conversation, I was so sad. And here I was getting ready to get married the next day to a beautiful person. And there was that beautiful moment when that, like I just said a moment ago, when the Holy Spirit was reminding me, Kevin, you know what to do. Give me thanks. Give me praise. So right there in my kitchen, man, I found myself saying, God, I just want to thank you. Thank you for Jesus. You died on the cross for me. You saved me. And Lord, you've healed me. You've healed me. And Lord, you're with me now. You're with me now. You're going to see me through. You're going to see me through. Yes, Lord, thank you. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You're with us always, even to the end of the age. Even when we don't feel you. Even when you hide your face, you're still here. Thank you, Lord. And thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. And I think this is what shifts us from defeat to victory. So today, I just want to say, maybe you're listening online. Maybe you're here and you've never welcomed Jesus into your life. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one. We're, it's not about us. And uh, this would be a good time to say, I want Jesus. You know, he'll give you a fresh start. You want a new beginning? You can have a new beginning today, really, seriously. It doesn't matter what you've done or failed to do. It doesn't matter how bad, how terrible, how evil. He'll meet you. So I'm just inviting each of you, and, and if you've never done this, you've done this before, just say, Lord Jesus, wash away my sins. Wash away afresh everything that interrupts my relationship with you or interferes with my relationship with you. Draw me to you, draw me to you, draw me to you, please, right now. Make me the person I can't make me. I heard somebody say last week the, power with willpower, or the problem with willpower is the will has no power. 
I agree with that. that. This is not about willpower. So you can say, Jesus, I come, I come. Help me to come, help me to receive, help me to experience you. And thank you. Thank you that you have come into my life. Thank you that you are cleansing me or washing me or making me a new person. I give you permission to do that. And I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. And if you agree with that prayer, would you say amen?